Welcome to Psych in the City podcast, where sexual fantasies meet sexual realities. Join me as I learn and unlearn with the help of expert guests and friends, all the weird stuff we've been taught about our sexual and psychological selves. Through exposure, education, and conversation, Psych in the City hopes to reduce stigma around mental health and sexuality. I'm a licensed social worker training to become a clinical sex therapist and educator. I love learning about sex, human behavior, and psychology, and believe that having access to education and quality information is a human right. Not to mention, it enables us to make informed choices about the lives we live. This is Psych in the City. Hello and welcome to Psych in the City. I'm your host, Sarah Kelleher. If you're listening to this podcast, I really appreciate it. And I would really, really love if you could review and rate my podcast on iTunes. It's extremely important. It helps other people find me. You can also follow me at Psych and the City BK or email me at psychandthecitybk at gmail.com. Today, we're going to be talking about HIV and AIDS. World AIDS Day is on December 1st, and the theme for the 2020 observance is ending the HIV and AIDS epidemic, resilience, and impact. For a lot of people, I feel that maybe we don't consider HIV as something we have to worry about or that it's something that's happening way over there. We don't know anybody who is positive. We don't think we sleep with anybody who is positive. We just don't deal with it. And I think for people my generation and younger, I'm 29 years old, considered a millennial, when we think of HIV, we think of something that happened in the past that's now controlled. And while we have made incredible strides in the prevention and care of HIV, this is in no way eradicated and solved. So maybe this is not the most sexy topic, but informed sex is sexy. This is part of culture. This is part of history. This is public health at its core. And I feel like for a lot of people, myself included, sometimes it's we don't care about our health until we have to, until we get a diagnosis or a scary doctor's visit or start being or start having symptoms. And I think that's when we're like, oh shit, this is real. It can happen to us. I cannot get into everything in this time frame, nor am I qualified. I cover a tiny bit of the history of the HIV epidemic, and I, and I miss a lot of stuff. I'm telling you that going in, and I encourage you to do your own research. The truth is, HIV is 100% preventable, and knowledge is power. This is Psych in the City. So to help me discuss all of this stuff is a friend and coworker, Natalia. So, hi, Natalia. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. So, a little background. Natalia and I both work at a Brooklyn-based hospital in the Infectious Disease Clinic. Natalia, as the prep specialist, and me as a social worker, I work specifically with people who identify as women who are living with HIV and AIDS, and Natalia works with people who are at risk for contracting HIV, which is essentially everybody. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So anybody that comes in who has been assaulted or um, wants to be tested or 
anything in that realm, Natalia works with them and works on prevention. So a little background on Natalia. Natalia is a passionate public health professional with over eight years of experience in the health and social services sector. With a master's in public health and bachelor's in health sciences, Natalia uses her experience to educate patients about PrEP and encourages them to make informed decisions about sexual health care. As the PrEP specialist at a Brooklyn-based hospital, Natalia manages a caseload of high-risk PEP and PrEP clients conducts PrEP screenings and assessments, HIV testing, outreach, education, navigates insurance and financial barriers to PrEP treatment, and serves as a liaison between the emergency department and our clinic for PEP PrEP patients. Natalia's determination to promote PrEP awareness is evident in her work with community organizations, and she co-facilitates the biannual Brooklyn is Prepped Network meeting. Overall, Natalia's work supports ending the epidemic goals with a significant impact in the Brooklyn, New York community. Wow, Natalia. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. So, this is like HIV point 101. There is so much to know about HIV. This is meant to be super basic and is no way all encompassing about all there is to know. Um, In the podcast notes, I'm going to put the links and resources to help you learn more if you want to and where I got the information from, which is primarily the CDC, HIV.gov, and uh, a history website. And so before we get into it, Natalia, how did you get into this work? I mean, I feel like I just fell into this like I applied for a job and I didn't even know what it was and then I got it but how did you how did you get into this field public health HIV because I feel like you've done a lot of cool things from 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 what you've told me oh thanks Sarah um (laughs) yeah I kind of fell into this um field too right um so let's start back from like after graduating my master's in public health. After graduating um, with a master's in public health, um, my first public health gig was uh, working in Belgrade, Serbia, um, where I worked in a smoking sensation campaign for um, teens. Um, I did that for a bit, um, really loved it. Um, I loved it because I was working on um, supporting in healthcare systems on a larger scale. and decided that this is definitely something I want to do moving forward. Uh, when I get back, when I got back from Belgrade, I started working with a nonprofit organization, um, uh, working specifically in um, mental health, specifically with mental health within um, the Caribbean population, mm-hmm. um, because it's a population that um, needs a lot of mental health services but underutilizes it. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, any, if anyone is familiar with nonprofit work, um, a lot of the work that you do is grant funded. And so when that mental health grant ended, um, the organization liked me so much that they wanted to keep me on board. Um, and so they moved me on to a different grant and the grant that they put me on was a prep grant. Mm. Um, and so I've been working in prep ever since. Um, it's been about five years now. Um, after working with that organization for a couple of years, um, I decided I wanted to work on prep on a larger scale and ended up um, at our current site <laughs> um, in Brooklyn. Wow. That must have been, Serbia must have been a really amazing experience. It was How amazing. long were you there? I was there for three months. 
Wow. Yeah, it was great. It was great um, for so many different reasons. You know, just being in a space, um, I'm a woman of color. Um, so being in a space where um, everyone's predominantly white, um, like the stops, the stairs, the wonder, um, that was always amazing. I now know what it feels like to be Beyonce. Um, an interesting story. I mean it. Yeah, like an interesting story is that we went into um, we went into an ice cream shop, and um, our backs were turned against the door. So we we're getting ice cream, and then we turned around. There was a crowd of people behind us taking pictures because you know, in in some cases, they they've never seen um, people of color. Yeah. And so they were just like, you know, what's happening here? But on a public health level, on a public health scale, um, it was so interesting because like it was in that moment that I realized that I realized how um, like how good we have it here in the States. Just just things that we take for granted, like 311, right, like having a, a system um, where you can dial in and just call in for information. Like that, that was foreign to them. Three one one. So you know how we have we have three one one here. You can dial three one one and just call in and just say, "Hey, I need the telephone number," or you can give yes. me information about this organization, or like what time Miss Parks are is like. Um, right, right. You know, parking inquiries. Exactly. Um, that w- that's a system that's foreign to them. They don't have like a centralized system where they can get like random information that's beneficial for like the community so that was interesting um things like you know us collecting data so again I was working on a smoking sensation campaign and like one of the questions that I had was like oh well how many people have died um from this time to this time um and it's it's smoking related they could they could not give me that number because they did not collect it they don't have a system in place that collects that data um, so like just it was just it was just interesting working with you know working with a system that was still developing if yeah. that makes sense yeah um, so it was great it was it was it was awesome it was a really really good experience so people were were people often taking pictures of you because you were a person of color and they for a lot of people they had never seen a person of color before yeah I think people were just really curious um yeah, they, they'd never seen us. Like, we would walk down the street and people would come up to us and, like, touch our skin, um, like, want to touch our hair. Um, yeah, wow. it was mostly out of curiosity. I think it was one person who um, the experience wasn't too great. I felt a little unsafe. Um, right. But we were able to get away from him. Um, right. Right. And yeah, and just go about our day. But for the most part, people were just like genuinely curious, interested, um, just to know why we were there, what we were doing, um, and um, just wanted to know a little bit more about us. That was it. I mean, for, for yeah. some folks, the most the most they've seen a, a person of color is on TV. So right, it was right. yeah, it was interesting. It was an interesting experience. That's so interesting about the data collection because you were mm-hmm. working there for to you know to support the system yeah Um, to support the system and then it's like there was no really data for you to work off of yeah 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 um yeah it was it was yeah it was pretty interesting they they had just started when we got there they had just started what we know to be um our census right 
So oh. they started doing something very similar. And um, that was like, I, I, the idea of collecting data is something that they wanted to do, but they didn't know how to do. And so they started it out with um, like doing something census related where they would give out a survey to some of the community members and have them answer questions. Um, and they would use that information to um, just collect a series of just different data. Um, so I was fortunate enough where I got information for, I think maybe two years prior, um, but it wasn't enough for me to like really support. Yeah. Um, and so what I ended up doing my at the end of at the end of my time there, I ended up uh, creating a um, a smoking sensation campaign targeted towards youth. Um, and more or less, it was like creating a brochure um, that talked about the importance of uh, smoking sensation and you know like some of the the health the health um, uh, risk factors if if you if you start smoking at a, at a young age, um, reasons to quit, um, and that was distributed amongst the school systems, um, and creating a poster that was used, I think, two years in a row during their like smoking sensation smoking cessation um, like day. They had like a a day dedicated to it in January. Um, mm. So yeah. So that was exciting. Okay. HIV. <laughs> HIV. <laughs> HIV. Yeah. Okay. So HIV, let's start with the basics. Okay. HIV stands for human immunodeficiency virus, the virus that causes AIDS, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. So before I get into the history and a bunch of stuff, I just want to talk about where we are currently statistics wise. In 2019, there were approximately 38 million people across the globe with HIV and AIDS. Of these, 36.2 million were adults and 1.8 million were children, 15 years or younger. Approximately 81% of people with HIV globally knew their HIV status in 2019. The remaining, about 19%, 7.1 million, still need access to HIV testing services. We'll get into this more, but testing is the gateway to HIV prevention, treatment, care, and support, and support services. As of 2019, 25.4 million people with HIV, 67%, were accessing antiretroviral therapy, known as ART, globally. That means 12.6 million people are still waiting. People with HIV who are aware of their status take medication daily as prescribed and get and keep an undetectable viral load can live long, healthy lives and have effectively no risk of sexually transmitting HIV to their HIV negative partners, which we will discuss because I feel like a lot of people don't know that. I feel like mm -hmm. people that I've told that I've worked in the field, they're like, oh, like tell them about the medications. They're like shocked that people can have sex and live regular lives and yeah. th that it's not, you know, I, I feel like that's a shock. I mean, it was a shock to me kind of. In yeah. 20 it was a shock to me before I got in. <laughs> so yeah, New York, where we are at in 2017, more than 1.1 million people in the U S are living with HIV. Nearly 700,000 people in the U S have died of AIDS related causes since the epidemic began. In 2017, the group with the highest number of diagnoses was black men who have sex with men, 
representing about 25% of all new infections. New York City leads the nation in the number of new HIV cases. More than 125,000 New Yorkers are living with HIV and AIDS, and yet nearly 20% do not know they are infected. So a little language, yeah, that we will most likely be using throughout. Natalia, what is a viral load? Okay, so viral (laughs) load... (laughs) Let's go into it. <laughs> um, so viral load refers to the amount of virus in, in, a, in, in, in a person who's infected, right? Whose blood is infected. Um, this uh, number is expressed in the number of viral particles that is in a person's blood, right? In each millimeter of a person's blood. In the case of HIV, the viral load is the level of HIV in a person's blood. So someone who has a negative HIV status will have no HIV viral load, right? Um, a person who has a positive HIV status um, will have either a high viral load, a low viral load, or have an undetectable load. Mm. Um, yeah, so, which is pretty cool. I learned this while, while I was in the field. Um, yes. So a high viral load typically means that the virus is attacking the person's immune system, right? And that the infection is progressing, right? Um, a low viral load is an indication that the person's immune system is working well to fight off the virus, um, which is great, uh, and an undetectable viral load indicates that the person's immune system is performing so well at fighting off the virus that our current technology can't pick up the number of viral particles in this person's lab work, which is awesome. Yes. And what is CD4? These are cells that are found within the immune system, right? It's a type of white blood cell, sometimes called T cells, that move throughout the body to find... Um, like bacteria, viruses, and other invasions within the body and attacks them. Yeah, so the way that uh, HIV works is that once a person becomes infected and that's the virus is inside the person's body, it attacks the immune system, right? Specifically, it attacks the, um, the help, the T cells, right? Right. Um, the virus itself, it's such a tricky little virus. Um, it penetrates into the cells and... Um, it takes over the cells. And so as these T cells are replicating so that it can fight off the virus, what it's doing is replicating and making more of this HIV virus, right? Which is Mm. why the viral load will go really high. Um, Then it starts replicating at a rate that the body can't fight off, right? Which is where um, a person might experience, um, you know, some some, some symptoms that'll indicate that this person is fighting off an infection. Um, uh, so that's how the virus itself works. Um, CDC, the CD4 cells are, are there to really support a person's body and help attack the person's cell. Um, but with HIV, it makes it very difficult to do that. Well, unmanaged HIV, right. um, it makes it very difficult to do that. Yeah. And so basically how I like to remember it is that when a person starts taking medication, if as prescribed, their Mm -hmm. viral load will go down and their CD4, their T cells, their immune system will go up. So that's how in our clinic we measure if someone's basically taking their medication is if, you know, we get blood work done from them and then we can see if someone comes in with a very high viral load either from a new infection or because they were not taking they were not adherent to medication once mm-hmm. they begin taking the medication it, i mean it's incredible the medication works pretty instantly yeah. and yeah. 
their viral load will start to go down and their T cells immune system, CD4, will start to increase. Right. So what is U equals U? We'll go into that briefly. You might have seen these. If you live in New York, there were campaigns. There were subway mm-hmm. signs all over saying U equals U. And so, Natalia, explain to us what that means a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so U equal U is an informational campaign that started around 2006 that really focused on the effectiveness of HIV medication um, um, as a major prevention tool in preventing sexual transmission of HIV. So U equal U means undetectable, means untransmittable. Um, essentially what that means is if a person has a positive HIV status and is on HIV meds or and try uh, retroviral therapy um, or ART or ART um, and has a consistent undetectable viral load, right? And that's where um, our, our technology, our current technology cannot pick up on the number of viral of viruses in this person's blood sample. Right. The virus cannot be transmitted um, to a sexual partner. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing stuff. And we have a cup and we've, I mean, working in the field that we work in, like, it's not impossible. It's, it's, it's very possible for someone to have an undetectable load, um, viral load, and not transmit the virus. Yes, yes. And, and we see that all the time because yeah. I think many people think that once you're diagnosed with HIV, mm-hmm. you know, it's a life sentence, quote unquote. Uh, you can't really engage sexually anymore without putting partners at risk. It's a, you know, many people still have this, misconception yeah this conception Mm -hmm. that hiv you know you're not able to be sexual you're not able to explore relationships um you know you have to keep it a secret but but actually people that have an undetectable viral load can and do have sexual partners they live sexual healthy lives and i i actually i i remember seeing those on the subway before i started working at the clinic and i was like what is that and then now i know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and people are still surprised by that because we've come so far with the medication. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really um, um, unbelievable. So, right. so how do you get or transmit HIV? So yeah. you can only get HIV by coming into direct contact with certain body fluids from a person who is HIV positive, who has a detectable viral load. These fluids are blood, semen, aka cum and pre-seminal fluid, rectal fluids, vaginal fluids, breast milk. For transmission to occur, the HIV in these fluids must get into the bloodstream of an HIV negative person through a mucous membrane found in the rectum, vagina, mouth, or tip of the penis, open cuts or sores, or by direct injection. HIV can only be spread through the through specific activities. In the United States, the most common ways are having vaginal or anal sex with someone who has HIV without using a condom or taking medicines to prevent or treat HIV, which Natalia will get into. Anal sex is riskier than vaginal sex, and you can also contract HIV from sharing injection drug equipment such as needles with someone who has HIV. Natalia, why is anal sex riskier than vaginal sex in terms of transmission? Yeah, um, I heard from a friend um, one day that anything having to do with the butt is usually the most riskiest thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because you run 
just so many risks with like anal tears um where it just it just it just makes it for that um yeah it's more likely to be to, to, to be infectious right because of the transmission of um just bodily fluid um blood um uh pre-com rectal fluid uh just just yeah, because the of tissue tissue yes. damage just makes it so much more vulnerable to right. um yeah in fact just just a virus just giving the virus a place to be to live you know right and and so which we'll get into in the history you know hiv from its inception was pretty much referred to as a gay disease Mm -hmm. which is untrue um anybody who has anal sex is more at risk for hiv because anal sex in and of itself is inherently riskier this is because the walls of the anus are thin and more easily torn creating more entry points for hiv into the bloodstream right and that this i thought was interesting too is that Many people sometimes stigmatize gay men for their high risk of HIV because they engage in riskier behaviors. But that's actually not true. But because many, when the epidemic started, many gay men were becoming infected. Right. So the pool in which people were engaging, there was a higher risk of HIV simply because more people in that population had it. Having anal sex, right? Yeah, we're having anal sex and we're positive at that time. Mm -hmm. So if you're having sex with a group of people that is more at risk for HIV, you are likely more to get HIV, not because of this of the of being gay, but because the pool that you are having sex in is at higher risk. Does that make sense? Did I explain that well? Yeah, I think you did an awesome job. That's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) so okay hiv.gov has a ton of information regarding hiv and has a very extensive timeline from essentially the first reported case in the states 1981 to now so scientists have traced the origin of hiv back to chimpanzees and the i don't know if i'm saying this right but simian immunodeficiency virus known as siv an HIV-like virus that attacks the immune system of monkeys and apes. Isn't that crazy? So in the, <laughs> I know. In the 1980s and early 1990s, the outbreak of HIV and AIDS swept across the United States and the rest of the world. Though the disease originated decades earlier, research shows that HIV-1, which is the most common type of HIV worldwide, first infected humans in the sub-Saharan Africa at some point in the first half of the 20th century. It was transmitted from chimpanzees when people came into contact with their blood through hunting or butchering. HIV probably remained confined to Africa for many decades, in part because travel within and from Africa was uncommon at the time. But according to history, it spread due to trade and infrastructure routes. So roads, railways, rivers, and people that were migrating. And so HIV 
came in contact with humans because of butchering and hunting. So no one fucked a monkey. That's not a thing. <laughs> I feel like that was like the Marilyn Manson rumor. Did you hear that? I <laughs> heard that. Like, removed, that that was like, I, I heard that and I was like, that can't be true. That can't be true. <laughs> but I feel yeah. like that was a thing. Like when I grew up, people were like, oh yeah, like someone had sex with a monkey and that's how we got HIV. And and, and like, I was like, huh, that sounds untrue, but like maybe. maybe. And then- yeah, and then in this, you know, in a book that I'll put in the notes, it, it's it's proven. I mean, very strongly agreed with theory that that HIV was contract was given to humans through butchering and hunting mm-hmm. of animals, monkeys specifically. No one had so, sex with a monkey. No one had sex with a monkey. He did no one have did. an uproar. Yes. <laughs> so. So people sometimes say that HIV started in the 1980s in the United States. But in fact, this was just when people first became aware of HIV and it was officially recognized as a new health condition. So in 1999, so years after, researchers identified a strain of chimpanzee SIV called SIV-CPZ, which we don't have to remember, which was nearly identical to HIV. Chimps, the scientists later discovered, hunt and eat two smaller species of monkeys. And those two types of monkeys carry and infected the chimps with two strains of SIV. These two strains likely combined to form SIV-CPZ, which spread to humans via hunting and butchering. So researchers believe the first transmission of SIV to HIV in humans that then led to the global pandemic occurred in 1920 in Kinshasa, Kinshasa the capital and largest city in the, in the Democratic Republic of, of Congo. So in the 1960s, HIV spread from Africa to Haiti and the Caribbean when Haitian professionals in the, in the colonial Democratic Republic of Congo returned home. The virus then moved from the Caribbean to New York City and around around 1970 and then to San Francisco later in the decade. So international travel from the United States helped the virus spread across the rest of the globe. So in 1981, HIV starts gaining traction in the states and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published a report about five previously healthy gay men becoming infected with pneumocytosis. Cystis, oh God, pneumocystis pneumonia, which is caused by the normally harmless fungus, type of fungus that I can't pronounce. This type of pneumonia, the CDC noted, almost never affects people with uncompromised immune systems. So all of a sudden, the CDC posts this thing of like, hey, we found these five previously healthy people, and now they have this kind of strange commonality with within their immune system so it's 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 noted but it's in no way people are not prepared for the for the epidemic that it's about to be so Mm -hmm. the following year the new york times publishes an alarming article about the new immune system disorder which by that time had affected 335 people killing 136 of them so this is Right around the time that we're starting to hear, the, which is gay-related immune deficiency. So we're starting to hear a lot of gay slurs within the lexicon of people are thinking that it's a gay disease because it started to affect gay men. 
And that's what researchers pot. It, it was it was in every you know mainstream newspaper. People were starting to become very fearful that this was a gay related disease, which only fed the fire of anti LGBTQ mm-hmm. people and and just systemic you know problems. So though the CDC discovered all major routes of the disease transmission as well as that female partners of a- of HIV positive people could be infected. In 1983, again, the public considered HIV a gay disease. It was even called the gay plague for many years after. In September of 1982, the CDC used the term AIDS for the first time to describe the disease. By the end of the year, AIDS cases were also reported in a number of European countries. In 1984... So three years after, researchers finally identify the cause of AIDS, the HIV virus, and the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, licensed the first commercial blood test for HIV in 1985. It's just kind of interesting to when I was looking at this because, Mm -hmm. I mean, think of it in terms of COVID-19. We're talking about developing a vaccine, honestly, in less than a year. and where this was three i mean they discovered what caused it in 1999 several years after yeah. people were dying all the time it, yeah it just shows how far yeah um, it just shows advanced. how far our medicine has yeah. come yeah exactly so in 1985 actor rock hudson became the first high profile fatality from hiv and aids and in fear of hiv making it into blood banks the fdi the, F- the, F- the, FDA. the FDA also enacted regulations that banned gay men from donating blood. The FDA would revise its rules in 2015, which is like last year, to mm-hmm. allow gay men to give blood if they've been celibate for a year, though blood banks routinely test blood for HIV. So that's just a, a really antiquated, ridiculous yeah. Yeah. ridiculous law if you've been celibate for a year i didn't know that this was the case it's crazy yeah and and i mean now again with the technology that we have blood is so i mean it's 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 because so many people were infected with hiv through blood transfusions at at, at one point the the blood is so tested that this is really a, a just a just a, a cool rule yeah, yeah. By the end of 1985, there were more than 20,000 reported cases of AIDS, with at least one case in every region of the world. So in 1987, the first antiretroviral medication for HIV, azadothymidine, AZT, becomes available. The World Health Organization in 1988 declared December 1st to be World AIDS Day. By the end of the decade, there were at least 100,000 reported cases of AIDS in the United States and who estimated 400,000 AIDS cases worldwide. So in 1991, the red ribbon becomes an international symbol of AIDS awareness. That year, Magic Johnson announced that he had HIV, helping to further bring awareness to the issue and dispel the stereotype of it being a gay disease. Soon after, Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of the band Queen, announced he had AIDS and died a day later. In 1994, the FDA approved the first oral and non-blood HIV test. Two years later, it approved the first home testing kit and the first urine kit. 
Age-related deaths and hospitalizations in developed countries began to decline sharply in 1995 thanks to new medications and the introductions of art. Still, by 1999, AIDS was the fourth biggest cause of death in the world and the leading cause of death in Africa. So in 2001, generic drug manufacturers began selling discounted copies of patented HIV drugs to developing countries, leading to several major pharmaceutical manufacturers slashing prices on their HIV drugs. The following year, the Joint United Nations Program on HIV and AIDS, known as UNAIDS, reported that AIDS was by far the leading cause of death in sub-Saharan Africa. So, oh, this is interesting. In 2009... President Barack Obama lifted a 1987 U.S. ban that prevented HIV-positive people from entering the country. This is not that far away. This was 10 years ago. Oh, my God. Crazy. I didn't know that we had a ban that prevented HIV-positive people from entering the country. This is, it's so crazy. I feel like we're just reliving this time right now. It's Yeah, so no, it's it, it really is. This is, it's really, you know, and that's something that's really interesting. A lot of the people that I work with who are of a certain age who lived through the HIV epidemic, this is their yeah. second in, in a yeah. lifetime. And it's just yeah. uh, many people are becoming, it's bringing up a lot of old feelings. It's bringing up a lot of traumatic memories as it would for anybody who right. was so scared during this time because I mean even this timeline and again this is like a a a very abbreviated timeline because there was just so much information that I just like got overwhelmed but um but this was (laughs) this is I mean this they were probably fast-tracking stuff at this time and this was still moving much more slowly than now you know yeah and it's crazy. The, yeah. So in 2012, the FDA approves pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP for HIV ne- negative people in 2012. When taking PrEP, which Natalia will get into, this can reduce the risk of HIV from sex by more than 90%. Is that still accurate mm-hmm. or more? Yes. Yes. And from intravenous drug use by 70%. Is that still true? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A major study completed in 2019 showed that over 750 men who have sex with men on antiviral treatment did not transmit the virus to their partners. So PrEP works, which we will discuss. Our findings provide conclusive evidence that the risk of HIV transmission through anal sex when HIV viral load is suppressed is effectively zero. So that was a paper published by the CDC. At the end of 2017... Some 36.9 million people were living with HIV and AIDS worldwide. This number is up now. I don't have the most recent numbers, but 940,000 people died from AIDS-related illnesses that year. So 2017. Sub-Saharan Africa remains the most severely affected region, accounting for nearly 70% of the world's current HIV cases. So this is still... I mean, so the book and the band played on, which I haven't read, but it's on my list. It, mm-hmm. it it basically goes through article by article of when HIV came to the States and how it just there was so much misinformation, so much lack of and people were dying left and right. Yeah. 
And, you know, current medications, we, we have come really far, but it's, it, it, this is in no way eradicate. This is still a major, major, yeah. major problem. And a lot of that is because people don't have access to good care and yeah. the medications that can help. And, you know, I mean, would you say, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there are a number of reasons, but one yes. of them being, yeah, lack of access, um, you know, inadequate health care. Mm. I mean, we can go into the stigma, right? right. Um, stigma. Yeah. Yeah, just not not wanting to be associated with the disease itself. Um, lack of awareness. Some people just aren't aware. Some people don't know about HIV. They don't know um, the effects of HIV. They don't, you know, they just, they just don't, they don't have the information, um, testing, right. Uh, low right. testing. I thinking was... that it's a problem like way over there, which I talked mm-hmm. about in the intro, you know, like thinking that, I mean, we see young people coming in all the time at the clinic yeah. that are, that are newly positive yeah. all the time. Yeah. There's this, there's this, you know, this, everyone's walking around with this feeling of like, immortality right like it won't happen to me until it actually does um so no one like you know key message no one's immune to hiv yeah like no one yeah it's not bias (laughs) right right and and so and i think so you know i didn't get into this in the in the in the brief history that i did but so Mm -hmm. when azt the medication first came out for hiv there were a ton of side effects and many people opted to not take the medication because sometimes the side effects they construed were worse mm-hmm. than just living with HIV. Now the medications have much improved. There are mild side effects, kind of side effects with any, I mean, depending on the medication, but there are many options available. It is not, you know, it was referred to one time as like the cocktail Mm-hmm. Now there are one pill regimens. There are two pill regimens. Um, the medication has really improved and it makes living with HIV much more normal because, yeah. because at one time the medications were so, they, they, they were, it was, it, it, they were really had so many side effects that people were actively choosing not to go on them due to the side effects. And it yeah. was a valid choice because they were really severe. So let's talk about current medications and how they work, which is where Natalia comes in. So <laughs> Natalia, what is PrEP? I, I mentioned it, you know, in t- 2012, it was developed. What is PrEP? Yeah. Um, so PrEP stands for, as you mentioned, pre-exposure prophylactics. Uh, PrEP is a daily pill that a person can take to protect against HIV so long as ta- they're taking it as prescribed, which is every day. Um, people take PrEP before exposure to HIV. So pre-exposure prophylactics, pre-before uh, sexual mm-hmm. uh, encounter. Um, once the medication is built enough concentration in your blood system, um, if a person is exposed to HIV, the likelihood of them becoming effective is significantly reduced. So, like, right now, there's only two um, FDA-approved medications for PrEP. Uh, One is called Truvada. Uh, The second is called uh, Descovy. And most recently, um, a couple of, maybe about two, three months ago, Truvada just went uh, generic. Uh, 
Um, mm. So those are the only two approved medications for um, PrEP. Yes. And I mean, I said before, but but so let's say I'm taking PrEP as prescribed. Mm-hmm. What is my risk of contracting HIV if I if I am taking it exactly as prescribed? If you're taking it as prescribed and that is every day, which is what I need to stress. Um, the likelihood, yeah, you've reduced your chances of HIV infection by over 90%. I mean, I've read literature that says 99%. Um, wow. But yeah, like it's, yeah, like if you're taking the medication, this is the bee's knees of like safeguarding. <laughs> yeah, right. safeguarding against HIV. Yeah, it's, it's extremely effective um, if you're taking it as prescribed, which is every day. And I stress that because oftentimes um, we have patients who, um, you know, take the medication and and for the first time they're taking a medication that's consistent, who run into what we call um, pill burden, who like start and stop, start and stop, start and stop. And, you know, those moments that they stop are like the most vulnerable time for them, like for them and and HIV Mm -hmm. infection. So I stress like it's only effective if you're taking it every day and that's, um, um, is is it and that's how it's prescribed wow I never heard of the term pill burden before I mm-hmm. like that so who do you have the numbers on like how many people I guess nationwide are prescribed prep and are on prep or no how many people statewide let's do New York because that's where we live are yeah. prescribed prep yeah so as of um 2018 um, prep utilization within New York State was about 31,964. Mm. So it's a great number considering that it was approved in 2012, but it's not a great number because um, 31,000 within the state of New York is still relatively small. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're definitely, we're definitely going in the right direction, um, but there's clear it's clear that there's more work for us to do. Who should be on PrEP? Everybody? I think anyone who's engaging in sex should be on PrEP. Mm. Every yeah. single person who's engaging in sex should be on PrEP. I've, I advise married couples who've been together for 50 years to consider PrEP. Um, I advise, um, like, you know, f- folks that are entering a relationship to, to be on PrEP. Right. I mean, I think anyone who's engaging in PrEP... It, engaging in sex should uh, consider uh, taking PrEP. However, there are groups of people that are more at risk for HIV infection. Um, Like a lot of the information is more targeted towards folks that are engaging in um, certain behaviors, right? So like um, anyone who is engaging in sex with a partner who is HIV positive, um, someone, anyone who is engaging in sex with someone who's an intravenous drug user, um, anyone who's engaging in commercial sex work, um, mm. anyone who has recently tested positive for um, a bacterial STI, right? Uh, the idea is that if, if um, a bacteria, an STD can enter your body, um, you know, the likelihood of it being HIV is, is, is much higher, right? Um, anyone engaging in condomless sex um, would be a really great candidate for uh, mm. PrEP. Um, and anyone living in an area where the prevalence of HIV infection is high um, would be a really good candidate for PrEP medication. 
Which is Brooklyn. Yeah. Which is where we work. <laughs> we, is- yeah, we have, Brooklyn has high rates yeah. of HIV. Yeah. And so, so what are some side effects or barriers? I guess this is two questions, but mm-hmm. what are some barriers you've encountered? What are people's concerns about going on PrEP that you have found working with potential candidates for PrEP? Yeah. Um, oftentimes, uh, well, anyone who comes to me for PrEP is already in a different mindset, right? Like, right, right. you know, I'm interested in learning more about or improving my sexual health. Um, what are, what are my options? Right. Um, so the folks that come to me aren't really, um, those that we're concerned with, right. Because they're already, the, the foundation is there. Those that aren't coming to me, we're finding that uh, folks that are great candidates for PrEP that are not coming in for PrEP, um, oftentimes the reason right. for that is um, stigma in some cases, right? Like there's still a huge stigma associated with HIV, right? Um, you, The idea that, like you know, like you said earlier, that has nothing to do with me, right? Like HIV uh, prevention is not something that I need to be concerned about. That is... Um, another group's um concern right um misinformation misinformation Mm -hmm. about um hiv and and the risks um for a lot of folks um you mentioned this earlier um inadequate health care right um there are some neighborhoods that that there are people who live in some neighborhoods where you know just the healthcare system is not the greatest. Yeah. Um, and so access to testing is not great. Um, um, just just information in general about HIV is not is not at an all time high. Yeah. So I mean, there are a number of reasons why people don't think that prep is for them, or they they won't access prep. But yeah, we try to combat that all the time through outreach and um, informing communities that, you know, um, you know, PrEP is here to prevent HIV. What's, and you know what's interesting with this, you know, with this pandemic, because what, what's happening right now with COVID, because um, just like the way the, vi- the, 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 the virus is coming out, um, the way COVID is playing out, it kind of aligns with HIV and it, it just puts mm. things in a different perspective. It's a little bit more relatable in some cases. Um, so I don't know. I'm curious to see what happens with HIV um, at the end of COVID. Yeah, just like because of the- something. Yeah, I think because of the similarities and how we're moving um, about it, like the, right now, like folks who were who, who tested positive for um, COVID, like they're being stigmatized, right? And like this idea, like you know, like I, like I'm more than this virus, right? Like I'm, you know, there's more to it, right? Um, right. You know, hopefully that'll align with folks um, who are currently positive, HIV positive, and like that idea of like, yeah, I'm more than my HIV status. Um, the importance right. of um, medication, right? Like there's this talk about the vaccination, right? Um, and how it's preventable, right? Or like at least it, it would support in um, just healthcare overall, right? Like all of that, just a combination of all of that information and, you know, and having it align with what was going on with HIV, like 
what will be the social status of HIV at the end of this pandemic. Mm. And I think with something with any illness on Mm -hmm. this scale, there becomes polarization. I'm interested to see the course, too, of HIV care because COVID has impacted a lot of people's access, even more so to HIV Mm -hmm. care. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been open the whole time, but that doesn't mean that people, especially our clients or people who maybe are at risk for HIV, aren't nervous. I mean, this is bringing up a lot of stuff, you know, this is bringing up a lot of stuff of like, you know, especially for I work with positive people. It's a it's a common conversation of, you know, I'm not this is bringing me back to earlier days when I was, you know, because people are scared. They don't want to relive this very stigmatizing, discriminatory experience again. Yeah. Yeah. What are side effects? Of taking PrEP? Did you say what are the side effects of taking PrEP? Yeah. So most people who take PrEP medication do not report any side effects, right? Um, But it does react. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Another reason why a person should be on PrEP. (laughs) Um, But for those that do report um, side effects, some of the most common side effects are like nausea, upset stomach, uh, fatigue, and headaches. Um, and usually that goes away within like the first two weeks. Um, but like, I mean, and it, it, it would make sense, right? Like you're taking a new medication. It's a strong medication, right? But right. supporting your body to, to fight off a virus if you are exposed. So it, it would make sense that your body would, would experience some like, um, these symptoms because it's, it's essentially probably trying to fight it off. Right. But like over time, if you're taking it consistently, which is every day, um, <laughs> your body gets used to it. Right. Yeah. And then after about two weeks, your body stabilizes and it starts working for you. Nice. So many yeah. people get mild side effects, if at all, and it's really just an adjustment phase. Yeah, so very few people experience the what I call the bothersome yes. side effects. Mm. Um, it's very rare that some patients will come to us and 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 talk about um, some you know the adverse side effects. Um, and I want to mention in some rare case, in some rare cases the medication in prep can affect kidneys um, mm. and bone density, um, but oftentimes um, we find that those symptoms are within will be considered the vulnerable population and that's those that are too young and those that are that are elderly right um for folks that are taking medi- the, the prep medication at a very young age um oftentimes um you know the effects of bone density and kidney functions because the body's still developing right right um and in the case of those that are elderly the introduction of the medication kind of speeds up um uh bone deterioration and um kidney function, right? Mm. Um, but again, that's only within 2% of folks. Um, and um, clinical follow-up for PrEP medication is that a person would come in every three months for lab work, right? And, and, we're, dete- and we're looking for this, right? We're looking to see if your, your kidney functions are, are still normal. We're looking to see if your bone density has gone up or down or stayed the same, right? right. Um, and in those cases, if we, if we detect anything that's abnormal, we'll take you off the medication. Um, the upside about Discovy for PrEP, it's sort of mitigated for those to, for, for those side effects. And so oftentimes if we find patients can't, um, they can't be on a Truvada for PrEP because of those adverse side effects, we'll switch them over to Discovy. Mm, got it, got it, got it. Mm-hmm. 
what is pep we have not talked about pep at all we haven't so tell me about pep which is different from prep yes and we'll explain why so PEP stands for post-exposure prophylactics, right? So remember earlier we talked about PrEP being a pre-exposure prophylactics. Uh, PEP stands for post-exposure post-exposure prophylactics. Mm. Um, and it's a medication that people take past or after exposure, possible exposure to HIV within 36 hours of um, exposure. It's a medication that you would take 28 days after exposure to prevent HIV from replicating your body if you were exposed. So I, so I believe I am exposed to HIV in a, in various capacities. I come to mm-hmm. you, and you say, "Hey, PEP sounds like a good idea." I then take PEP for twenty eight days and then mm-hmm. get tested for HIV. Exactly. Well, you get tested. So the way it works is that you get tested. Yeah. Yes, you get tested initially so that we ensure that you have a negative status because we don't want to treat HIV prevention if you are, in fact, HIV positive. We want to be able to manage that, right? Um, But if we find that your test comes back negative, we put you on this regimen for 28 days, and then we test you afterwards, 30 days after your first exposure, and then we test you again uh, 60 days after the 30 days just to ensure that we didn't miss an acute infection. So who is a candidate for PEP, essentially. Anyone who's had sex within 72 hours and think they may have been exposed to to HIV. Or, and it's not only, and we're talking about HIV exposure sexually, but we also know that someone can be exposed to HIV through um, needle stick, right? And that's in the case with um, healthcare workers, right? Um, Right. Where they're working with a patient and they get a needle stick and they'll be put on uh, pet medication. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. And so in New York State, the pet regimen is, as of right now, um, Truvada, which is the medication that's used in pet medication, along with um, another medication called Ritagavir or Tibike. Um, there are some providers that I've worked with that um, use prep pet off-brand, right? Um, and they'll use a different uh, combination of medication. Um, but traditionally, the PEP regimen is Truvada with either Ritagavir, um, which is a, another brand of medication, or Tibica. Hmm. So part of the PEP medication is also part of PrEP. Exactly. But what it like, so if I come in and I think I've been exposed, if you gave me PrEP, wouldn't it essentially still work? Or not really? No. Um, so the, the beauty about, well, not the beauty, right? Um, <laughs> not the beauty, because you're not coming in and thinking this is a beautiful experience. You're right. probably right. like... You're a little less stoked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're probably like, anxiety's on high, um, and you're like, what's going to happen to me? No. Right. So because uh, the prep med- medication is a combination of two HIV um, uh, prevention medications, it's a lot stronger which is why um, mm. the regimen is a lot shorter. Um, and yeah, it does so much more because essentially what you're doing is trying to eradicate um, a possible exposure. However, if someone is on PrEP medication, right? And they've taken it, they've taken the regimen as prescribed, right? Um, and it's been on it and enough of the concentration of the medication is in their system and they've mm-hmm. been exposed to HIV. 
yeah, we have no worries. We wouldn't put them on prep medication because um, they've they've already reduced their chances of of, of becoming infected or seroconverting rather mm. um, by over ninety percent. Got it. Got it. Got it. I understand. I understand. So, what are things you wish people knew about prep pep prevention in general? I think the one thing that I wish people knew is that it exists. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's really it, is that it exists. Um, Because then that's just one less thing that we have. That's one less battle that I have to fight, right? Um, Right. Yeah, quick story. Um, I was working with a patient and I had to be the one to deliver the news that he was, um, in fact, HIV positive. And then when I told him what I did, the first thing he said was, where were you a few months ago? Um, yeah. So oftentimes, like, you know, when we meet patients who seroconvert and seroconvert being, um, going from an HIV negative status to an HIV positive status and, um, you know, having these patients learn about all of these prevention measures that were put into place, um, that have been put into place to prevent, um, seroconversion oftentimes, like, you know, why didn't I know about this before? You know, I wish I had this information before. Um, So if there's one thing I wish folks knew about PEP and PrEP is that it exists. How do we make it so people know more, more? I, I like in the work that we're doing, we know that the community that we work in are doing the best they can to really spread the information and get the information out there. I just, I personally think that there needs to be more funding, more people out there spreading the word, you know, because yeah. there's only so much we can do. I mean, working in a nonprofit, like, right. We don't have just, the biggest budget. Yeah, Exactly. We don't have the biggest budget, which means we don't have that much um, manpower. And because we don't have that much manpower, we don't have enough we don't have um, enough manpower to get the word out. Um, yeah. And just, yeah, I just I just wish that there was just a lot more funding, a lot more commitment um, to this cause because in the end, like HIV, is, it's 100% preventable. Right. It's preventable. And so um, it's just, it's, it's, it's just, it, it's, it's disappointing um, yeah. when totally. we, yeah, when we find out that, you know, people have seroconverted. Um, and though, you know, we've made so many advances, um, there's, it's clear that there's still work for us to do. When someone comes in and they have been, they're not a candidate for PEP because they weren't necessarily exposed in 72, in the last 72 hours. Mm-hmm. Got it. So then it's kind of too late, essentially? Yes and no. Um, I've had patients who have come to me um, after the after the seventy two hour mark and have asked to be put on prep, and we'll put a patient on prep um, uh, because it doesn't necessarily hurt. Right. So, so fun fact: um, PEP is still not FDA approved. Mm, I'm not exactly sure. I'm sorry. (laughs) I love that fact. (laughs) Um, I'm still not exactly sure why that's the case um but with some providers that i've worked with um they've kind of used it off brand right and so on brand you're taking this you you prescribe this medication or this regimen to someone within 72 hours right um but i've had i've had patients that have taken it 
five days out, right? Yeah. Um, and they they have not zero converted, you know? Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like it's a it's a really powerful drug. And I mean, in the case of some of the patients that we've worked with, maybe the exposure risk was really low, right? right. Um, you know, maybe they got really lucky. I mean, we we don't know, but um, we wouldn't turn someone away if it's past the 72 hours. If anything, I think it really supports them with um, easing the mental anxiety around mm. um, HIV infection. So it does serve a purpose, right? Um, right. But totally. yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So how to practice safe sex when you are HIV positive or sleeping with someone who is HIV positive? What 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 are some tips, tricks, the like? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So anyone who's having sex with someone who's HIV positive, I would just encourage this person to just, just learn a little bit more about this person's status. Like, are there, like, what's their viral load? Right. Like, are they undetectable? You know, yeah. Yeah. Are they undetectable? You know, just see where they are with that for sure. Right. Um, because I my think, job, because on. I think sometimes it's like, it's like, you know, the question is, are you clean, quote unquote, yeah. and then that it ends there when it's like, oh, yeah, but a that doesn't really help with open conversation, because then anything you say after that, if it's if it's a no, then you're construed right. as dirty. So I think that's problematic right. language. And I think that, you know, sometimes even if someone reveals that they are positive, it, there's still there's more, more to than that. that. Yeah, there's exactly. still more than that because there's still need. It's it's you know the further questions can be: Are you undetectable? What's your viral load? How long have you been on Medicaid? You know, and and these are conversations that should be had because right. someone can be positive and be undetectable for many years, which yep. is a completely different scenario than someone right. who is on and off medication. In which case, that's a different conversation and a different, you know, experience. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I really encourage um, anyone who's engaging in sex with someone who is HIV positive just to have an open conversation about where this person is with their health, where they are with their viral load, um, and sort of go from there, right? Um, Like you said, um, depending on how that conversation goes, you can have multiple scenarios, in my line of work, I primarily work with folks that are HIV positive, excuse me, HIV negative. Mm. Um, and so I always encourage them to protect themselves right. um, and, and take prep medication, use condoms, right? Um, and, and, that's, and that's me just empowering them to take charge of their sexual health. Now, right. I've also run into couples, right? who are um, interested in having a child, right? Where one person is um, HIV, has a HIV positive status and the other person has an HIV negative status, right? Assuming that this person um, has an HIV status um, that is undetectable um, and has been consistently undetectable, um, you know, the conversation can go two ways, right? If, there's, if there isn't a fear of infidelity, if, if health isn't a concern, yeah, you can have sex with this person without necessarily being on prep, without using condoms and still, um, and it not be transmittable, right? Like, and right. not having to like 
worry about the elephant in the room and that being like transmitting the virus right right which i think is something that many people are surprised about right right like you can you can have a perfectly healthy sexual health life um excuse me you can have a perfectly healthy sex life if you know you're just you're just you're just following the rules you're taking care of your health um you know you're doing what's best for you um in in other cases where you know there still is the stigma and concern um about hiv transmission i encourage the person who is hiv negative to to get on prep medication yeah take prep medication it'll ease your mental anxiety um um it's great for obviously the baby of course right um yeah um to 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 be on prep medication and so that's usually the advice um and we I have many, many parents who deliver yep. HIV negative babies all, I mean, all yeah. the time. We, yeah. it's, it is, it's, and, you know, knowledge and awareness is the first step because when people don't know their status, you know, many yeah. people, the only time, which I thought this was interesting when I first started working here, I learned that the only time an HIV test is required is if a person is pregnant. So you can, people can deny an HIV test when they're given, which often people do, because again, the stigma of like, I'm not at risk or I don't think I need it, you know, like Mm -hmm. unawareness. But so many people, or I think historically and still happens, many people discover their status when they are pregnant Mm -hmm. because that's the only time an HIV test is mandatory. And then, and, 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 you know, and people that take the medication as prescribed, you know, and then get pregnant and then and then have the child, it it it, it it's it's a complete it, it's it's completely safe. Yeah, yeah. I think you mentioned earlier that um, the number of uh, babies that are perinatally infected is now one percent. When I started working, the number was two percent, and so oh, it's wow. good to hear. Yeah, it's good to hear that the number is declining. Um, yeah, I mean, again, we are just, we are, we are progressing for yeah. sure with HIV transmission, l- reducing that number. Um, but we, it's clear that we just have a lot more work to do. Right. Yeah. So any, Natalia, any closing statements about HIV prep, prevention, anything? Um, I... I think the the one thing that I want everyone to know that's listening to this podcast is that HIV is a hundred percent preventable. We have so many tools in our toolbox to um, prevent HIV infection that the idea of going into a decade where there are zero newly infected folks is very possible, really possible. Um, so that's definitely one thing I want folks to know. Um, in addition, um, I'd like to, I always call PrEP the drug of hope, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time where, you know, HIV was a death sentence, you know, like as you were going through the history of, of HIV and AIDS, it was a death sentence. And we've gone so far um, with technology and, um, and have progressed so much within the world of HIV that um, to now have this drug that prevents um, HIV infection is just monumental, you know, um, you have couples who at one time didn't think they could have healthy sex lives or, you know, experience, um, 
uh, childbirth, you know, like have kids and, right. you know, that's not the case anymore. And, and so, have relationships and, 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 have, and, and have sex the way they want to. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, you have this medication out here to really support, um, really support that drain, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's that. Um, prep is out there. Take prep. Everyone's at risk. Anyone who's having sex is at risk. Um, right. Woo! Thank this you is so fun. Much. Among the 3 million HIV testing events reported to CDC in 2017, the percentage of transgender people who received a new HIV diagnosis was three times the national average. In honor of World AIDS Day and just in general, I encourage everybody to do more research about HIV and AIDS and the epidemic, the history, just more information about it. I also encourage everybody to donate to an organization called Glitz. It's an amazing organization which helps the immediate need and crisis support for transgender sex workers, including community members from the NYC area across the U.S. and globally. And there's a link in my Instagram bio to donate directly, Psych and the City BK on Instagram. Look up Glitz. They're an amazing organization. And the website is glitzinc.org. Bye.